this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. But we're in, in we're at a time now in the world where everything's up for grabs. And and we need to have some, I think you might say philosophical headlights to be able to navigate what's what's coming up, the territory that we are inevitably going to be traversing as individuals certainly when we leave this life but also collectively as as a as a world as a, as a, a global society you know we're each of our cultures is is immersed in its own history its own language its own iconography and and its own vision of reality and while i think that's unavoidable in in one sense i think a new it's time for a new collective mythos or a new collective orientation some kind now science has science and technology have provided that for the last 400 years or so but i think that's beginning to burn out and and you know we, we need a we need a, a new lantern in the darkness welcome to rebel spirit radio exploring the frontiers of spirituality consciousness the esoteric in humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, documentary filmmaker and author Daniel Drayson joins me to discuss his book, A New Science of the Afterlife, Space, Time, and the Consciousness Code. In addition to exploring evidence for the afterlife, including the skull experiments, Daniel discusses consciousness, pseudo-skepticism, synchronicities and post-mortem pranks, and how we need a new language for the afterlife. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Daniel Drazen is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and has been a photographer and media producer for more than six decades. Since the early 1990s, as featured in his documentary, Calling Earth, Drazen has been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication through traditional mental and physical mediumship, as well as modern electronics. He joins me today to discuss his book, A New Science of the Afterlife. Daniel, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, Good to well, meet you, and, and I look forward to our interview. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, and I'm also looking forward to this. And I think that the listeners will enjoy it, too, because this idea of the afterlife, I mean, the idea of the afterlife, it's the big question, isn't it? Or at least one of the big questions, what happens when we die? Uh, right, and, and we're all going to go there. So, uh, yes, it is, a, it is a rather important <laughs> issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I thought that, you know, an initial question one that I ruled out immediately was, well, why are you interested in this? Because I, my assumption is as a human, as a mortal human being, we should all be kind of interested in this question. So instead of asking you why, I wanted to ask, how did you get involved in this kind of research and the, uh, the documentaries and writing about this? I've sort of you might say I've kind of lived two parallel lives. One is as the media professional, which I started actually at quite an early age, being fascinated with both art and technology. I originally, <clears throat> uh, my original professional trajectory was to become an industrial designer, which is industrial design is, is a marriage of, of art and technology. 
but I soon uh, diverted into documentary filmmaking. This is when I was in my back in my teens. I met some uh, wonderful people back in New York where I grew up who were pioneering a certain style of documentary. And I <clears throat> started working with them and that kind of launched me on, on my career in that, <clears throat> excuse me, in that direction. So I've always been fascinated with communication, video, audio, television, internet, and so on. So that's the, the professional side of my life. And if you go to my website, you can see all that, that history there. Parallel to that, and this started when I was actually quite young, I, as a child, I experienced a number of precognitive dreams. Mm. And that, I didn't understand how that worked, but it was enough to, to demonstrate to me that, as I put it, in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. That, there, that there's more to reality than what we can perceive with our physical senses. And that was enough to, to stimulate a curiosity in me about, about reality. When I first started hearing UFO sighting reports, for example, which was back in the 1940s, before the curtain of, of secrecy and denial came down, it was, it was a fit subject for inquiry, investigation, so on. And even I used to listen to a, a, a radio commentator every evening did a news program and he used to to give ufo sighting and landing reports and i was very intrigued with this you know how how could this be <laughs> and later on i engaged in a, a fair amount of of investigation in this field meeting a lot of people who'd had sighting experiences and more i worked with john keel whose name you might mm. know on his research into the the mothman of Point Pleasant, which resulted in his book, The Mothman Prophecies, and then the very loosely adapted movie <laughs> right. here, The Mothman Prophecies. Uh, yeah, I, I accompanied John to West Virginia on a number of occasions, had some really interesting experiences there, <clears throat> excuse me, and and learned a lot about the, how how far you can stretch reality. <laughs> and 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 I'm, I tend to be skeptical, I think, in the best sense. I always check things out to the best of my ability. When, when anything happens around me that seems to be paranormal, I'm, I'm right on it. And for example, I, there was a period of time when I'd walk into a room and lights would blink on and off. Hmm. And I would always go and check the lamp and the bulb and the plug and all that to make sure that there wasn't a, a prosaic explanation for it. And I think that's really important because the more you check these things out, the more credible the genuine, genuinely paranormal events turn out to be. And, and I, I have to say, I'm not fond of, of words like paranormal because we don't know, since we can't talk about these things, how do we know how normal these things are or aren't? In my book, I say that how do we know our next door neighbors don't have rollicking conversations with their dead aunts and uncles uh, every Wednesday right. at 9 p.m.? We don't. Right. So the, the 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 term paranormal is kind of arbitrary, and it's it's based on culture more than any actual investigation. And similarly, the the term supernatural strikes me as being kind of presumptuous because it's like we're we are dictating the limits of nature, right? Mm. So we know what's within nature and what's outside of nature. And uh, I think this the longest chapter in my book is about semantics and how, mm. how language, how we let language determine our reality and how we need to be more conscious of that sort of thing. So anyway, so back to uh, my nutshell biography here. Around the early 1990s, when I lived, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area right now, and 
And But in the ni- early 1990s, I lived out in Boulder, Colorado, and I met a man named Mark Macy. Mark had been working with a, a group of, of individuals, both here in the United States, in Europe, and in Brazil, for quite some time, studying this phenomenon called instrumental transcommunication, which is communication from the other side to our side through electronics. And he had just written a book on the subject, and I was kind of scanned it and was kind of skeptical. You know, is is the CIA getting into our electronics, or you know, what's what's going on here? And then after I met enough people who had been actively involved in this practice, I, I was turned around completely. This this is something that's actually been going on since the about the 1950s, when tape recorders first became consumer items. And people started hearing voices on their tapes that didn't belong there. And in the United States, the, this this was mostly dismissed as you know, well, maybe the machine is picking up a, ra- a radio station. And this, this did happen. It was a phenomenon called radio pickup. If there was a, a powerful radio station nearby, sometimes electronic devices would pick up some of the broadcasts. So in the in the U.S., this phenomenon was pretty well dismissed. But in Europe, a number of scientists, researchers, and others realized that this was this was a, a genuine phenomenon. It started with a, a gentleman named Friedrich Jurgensen, who was a, a very well-known artist and filmmaker and actor and singer and polymath in Sweden. And back in the early 50s, he uh, acquired his first tape recorder and was out one night recording nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was producing. So he went out, he he did his recording, brought it back, and in the blank spaces between the nocturnal bird sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds. Hmm. And he, he thought this was quite a coincidence and kind of dismissed it. Well, maybe there was a some radio thing going on. But shortly thereafter, he heard on one of his tapes the voice of his deceased mother calling him by his childhood nickname, Friedel. So this was more than a coincidence to him. And he, at this point, he said, we have to study. This is, this sounds like something that's really going on. We, we need to research this scientifically. So he did, he started experimenting. He would roll the tape and ask a question and leave a blank space and ask another question and so on. And in the intervals where there should have been only silence, he heard faint but very distinct voices responding to his questions. And he, he kept this up for most of the rest of his life. This became a, an obsession and an object of research for him. He was then joined by a Latvian researcher by the name of Konstantin Raudeva who was another very curious and interested and interesting person. He worked with Jurgensen for a time. Then he went over and often did his own experiments. By the time he passed on in 1974, he had recorded by some accounts between 60 and 70,000 of these voices on tape. Wow. And after he passed, he showed up in his colleagues' experiments as well. And this has been a tradition of experimenters who've passed over and then uh, and then communicated with their colleagues back back here. And um, so this this phenomenon struck me as perhaps the most 
robust demonstration of after the existence of an afterlife and of afterlife communication, certainly that I, I had ever encountered. So my first effort in that direction was to produce a documentary with my co-producer, Tim Coleman. We went out across the United States to six European countries and over a period of 15 years, 10, 15 years, we produced, actually we produced two documentaries. The first is Calling Earth, which is which focuses on this phenomenon of electronic communication from the other side. And it's, I mentioned it in my book. In fact, one of the chapters in my book is based on this documentary. Another chapter is based on the other documentary we produced, which is called Skoll, The Afterlife Experiment. And this is about an experiment that took place in England in the latter part of the 1990s, in which four, four people together accomplished an amazing variety of um, creative, an amazing variety of paranormal phenomenon in concert with a team on the other side. They, this happened in the small English town of Skoll, S-C-O-L-E, which is about oh, a half hour's drive northeast of Cambridge. In, in the county of Norfolk. The, these people, one couple were traditional mental mediums and they their role was to channel what they call the spirit team on the other side that was working with them to create these experiments. The other half was a, a couple, Robin and Sandra Foy, who had spent a lifetime researching this field of what's called physical mediumship. Now, physical mediumship in general is where you set up conditions that can produce physical phenomena on this side. And there's a huge range of, of possibilities. There's traditional physical mediumship, which was, we know, practiced in the 19th century in the Victorian era with the advent of spiritualism and so on. And that, that followed a certain protocol, which in many instances, at least in, in terms of what we now consider to be scientifically evidential, it had its problems. It was, it was subject to manipulation and hoaxing and so on. It was also pretty well documented as genuine in many instances. But the Skoll experiment was different in that it, they took, the participants took great pains to eliminate any kind of hoaxing or trickery. The experiment was monitored, monitored for two years by uh, three properly skeptical investigators from the British Society for Psychical Research. Every session, there were 500, this one took place over 500 sessions. Every session was audio recorded in its entirety. It was, as I say, monitored for two years by these investigators from, from the British SPR. It was also attended by hundreds of visitors over time, over the periods, period of five years, including many scientists and, and skeptics as well, even a stage magician who couldn't find any, any of the trappings that he would recognize as, as you know, accountable for these phenomena. And so this is our other film, Skull, the Afterlife Experiment, which is, it runs 80 minutes and we think packs as much as we possibly could of the the evidence into 80 minutes the there more thorough documentations would include the the SPR's report called the skull report which you can get on, on Amazon <clears throat> the book written by Robin Foy one of the primary experimenters 
called Witnessing the Impossible, which is based on the notes he took of every one of the 500 sessions. It's this huge, thick book. And the popular book called The Skull Experiment by Grant and Jane Solomon, which is also available on Amazon. So our, you know, our in a way, our our 90-minute documentary only scratches the surface of Skull, but we tried to present some of the most uh, compelling um, audio and visual phenomena that we could acquire. Uh, they gave us some of the tapes of their sessions. We went to Los Angeles and interviewed a group of people who had, had, intend, had attended a session that took place in L.A., and we interviewed them 10 years after the event, and they were still jazzed by the experience <laughs> and and awed by the whole thing. So, and and this is in our this is in our documentary. So I think I'm kind of rambling here, but but that that will give you a, a a general picture of the landscape that has fascinated me, and I've sort of felt a responsibility to bring some of these things to the attention of the of the public. And uh, I, I found like my book's only been out a couple of months, and I've been surprised at the variety of 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 people who have who have found the book valuable and interesting. Um, can I read you a, a, a note that I just received? Uh, sure. Uh, this is the the this is a handwritten handwritten note that the publisher just forwarded to me. It's from uh, a woman in rural Ohio. Um, <clears throat> Dear Daniel, what a wonderful book! A new science of the afterlife. I sit here, just finished it, with tears, compelled to write you a note. Please forgive the writing errors. Emotion and age has me, 81, just a bit older than you. My one-of-a-kind husband of 60 years, high school sweetheart and 57 years married, lives in the afterlife now four and a half years. He is with me so often, still with his sense of humor, has apported many things, meaning made physical objects appear, and have heard my name at odd hours of the night. Your words have opened me to more of his existence. Thank you. Mm. So, I mean, this is totally a totally <laughs> unexpected note from someone who, I, a, a sort of person I would not be expected, would not expect to have been attracted to a book with science in, in the title. Right, right. Well, I think that in some ways it's giving people permission to acknowledge the experiences that they're having that's it seems like that's what the woman is kind of what's underlying a lot of this is that she has these experiences that her husband is still present in her life and i think often people will keep that sort of thing to themselves yeah. but if someone highlights some of the best evidence which is what you did it gives them permission to be like oh so this isn't just in my imagination. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I suspected that many people understood that the that the world was round yeah. before before yeah. science acknowledged it. Yes, for sure. Um, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, there's based on what you said, there's several areas I wanted to touch upon and go into. Let's start with this idea of skepticism. Because, you know, you note the importance of being skeptical about the skeptics. And I think that often 
the skepticism seems to just automatically reject this sort of evidence or claims of evidence without actually looking at the evidence. Would you agree with that? Well, I, I think the term skepticism has been hijacked, mm. basically, by this sort of cult of what I call in the book pseudo-skepticism. Right. It's alleged skepticism. Genuine skepticism as a component of science is simply to to question things. You know, some phenomenon is is discovered, so you approach it with questions. Say, well, you know, wait a minute, is this really happening? First of all, you know, let's let's check this out. You know, is someone just trying to pull the wool, or is this something that people actually experience? Okay, that's so that's number one. And assuming it's affirmed or confirmed, let's find out more about it. Does are the claims that have been made for it legitimate, or is something else going on? You know, so it it's just I mean to me science is basically organized curiosity. Hmm. That's what I've been calling it, and it's it's not inherently materialistic as as we've been led to believe at all. It's simply a process, a method of inquiry, and there there's there's really nothing that it can't or shouldn't apply to. And when things start happening that seem to be outside of authorized reality, I think that's where science should step in and start asking questions and be skeptical. You know, if the lights start blinking on and off, you know, check, check the electrical components, you know, because we don't want to fool ourselves. But that's the strength of science, right? That, that if not immediately, then over time, what, what's actually happening gets, gets reinforced and what's spurious or or imaginary or or unnecessary gets filtered out, right? And I think that that you know, given again, given that we're all going to go to the other side at some point, that science should be giving priority to asking these questions, and, and so that we have a a clear a clear picture of of what to expect, and and also a, a sense of how it all works. Hmm which I don't think is that complicated, actually. Right, right. If, if you think of, I, mean, I use the term in, in the book, I use the term the greater reality. Mm. And it's a, it's a kind of a catch-all term, but I think it's, it's basically how we should be looking at everything we don't yet, we haven't yet cataloged in our sciences, which are, you know, our sciences have not been around for, for very long. And for uh, up until maybe a hundred years ago, they were exclusively focused on, on the material world. You know, when when quantum mechanics came along, we began to sort of the, the boundaries became a little soft, and and questions began to be asked about the you know, the, the the deeper fabric of reality. Reality is still being interpreted as the physical universe, but in in, in my book, this is a little aside here. In, in my my chapter on on language, which is titled "Don't Eat the Menu," right. I I take a stab at having first disposed of things like objective truth, hmm. because uh, object the notion that that any one of us can declare what objective truth is, I think, is is a bit of an arrogance. We all experience life and see things in different ways, and you know science can help us the rules of science can help us become more objective about things, but ultimately how we interpret the whole thing is our responsibility. You know, one of the characteristics of, 
individual consciousness is that we we project our own take on reality. So what is reality as a whole? Well, read my book and find out. <laughs> I, I, propose, I propose what's basically a working definition that, that kind of goes beyond conventional definitions. Right. And I think everyone needs to decide for themselves whether this definition makes sense to them. Yeah. So that's one of the things I've had I've had fun with is the whole the, the language aspect. One one of my favorites is in the in the book the subchapter is called where the bodies are buried. And I ask you know, where are the bodies buried? Well some of them are buried right here in our English language. You know terms like anybody, everybody, somebody, nobody you know, implies subconsciously that we are nothing but our bodies. Right. We start saying everyone, anyone, someone, and so on. That kind of softens and broadens the definition a bit, and I think honors the the being more than rather than the than the the vehicle, the body. You know, right. so you know, I think we need to be aware of of language. I find it fascinating. I mean, you, when you overhear say bilingual or multilingual people in conversation they will tend to switch languages in the middle of in the middle of a sentence because one language provides a better expression than the other of 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 what they want to communicate so and you know this this gives us an insight into the you know, language is very relative it's very culturally determined it it reflects back to us our our culture's values and and what it considers to be true and valuable but we're in, in we're at a time now in the world where everything's up for grabs and and we need to have some i think you might say philosophical headlights to be able to navigate what's what's coming up the territory that we are inevitably going to be traversing as individuals certainly when we leave this life but also collectively as as a as a world as a, as a, a global society you know we're each of our cultures is is immersed in its own history, its own language, its own iconography, and and its own vision of reality. And while I think that's unavoidable in in one sense, I think a new it's time for a new collective mythos or a new collective orientation, of some kind. Now, science has science and technology have provided that for the last four hundred years or so. But I think that's beginning to burn out, and and you know we, we need a we need a, a new lantern in the darkness <laughs> as as our world begins to to break down in in so many ways. So well, I I feel I've sort of <laughs> gone gone off. <laughs> yeah, well, that's into, okay. Go go on, please. Yeah, no, we can yeah. kind of circle back around on some of these things. I, I love the idea of a language of the afterlife and even the term afterlife, I think is something that can be unpacked a little bit. And it, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, what would this new language of the afterlife look like? Because mm -hmm. we would probably have to come up with a different term than afterlife. And I forget exactly the way you phrased it, but it was, you talk in the book about the veil, that there's mm -hmm. this separation between, I guess, the living and the dead, this world and that world. It's this kind of duality. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's another place where the language can shift to give us a better representation or 
way of discussing, let me put it that way, a way of discussing what's real, mm-hmm. you know, now in regards to reality, one of the things that you discuss, and I think this is really important. And I think that this is a point where science and philosophy are just now really from a Western perspective, starting to examine these things. And I think that this is going to open up science and philosophy to um, ideas of like an afterlife. And that is the question of consciousness, because that is something that you address pretty early on in the book. I mean, you address the issues with materialism, and you're, I think, absolutely right that it's just an assumption about reality. It is a worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem also with materialism is this pesky consciousness because it's immaterial. Right. And right. so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the role of consciousness in regards to this new science of an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my favorite little, well, let me go back a step here and and mention that, as we all know, in our modern materialistic world, somehow the brain is thought to be the source of consciousness, and that consciousness is made out of something that can be dissected and sliced and diced and so on. And in in my book, one of the quotations is a, a lovely piece of wit which is big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them and little fleas have lesser fleas. And so ad infinitum. And this, this is the, has been to a great extent, the attitude of modern physics that if we keep, if if we keep finding the particles within particles, within particles, we'll get to the, the God particle or whatever, however you want to label it. And that will somehow explain consciousness. And which it's, 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 it's an awkward fit, actually, when you when you think of it. But the what what they're resisting, basically, is the idea that consciousness may be outside this framework. Again, who are we to who are we to dictate the limits of nature in in this in this way? So and one one of the consequences of, of this assumption, too, is that of the assumption of brain being the source of consciousness, is the term afterlife, which assumes that consciousness is born with the physical physical body and then continues afterward. But who is to say that that's where it began? I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence for reincarnation. There's plenty of evidence for experience between lifetimes. If you just look at the evidence, even you look at it critically, it's very, very difficult to, to, to dismiss. So uh, if, if the term afterlife is uh, to me, it's like you're, you know, there's this donkey and you're pinning this little tail on it, this little trivial appendage uh, on it, and say, well, that's you know, we're going to look forward to that. Uh, I think the I think the picture is a lot bigger than that, and and that you know, what we call the afterlife is the before life, and it's also the during life in the sense that the consciousness that's looking out through our eyes isn't from our brain. It's from that space that we're looking into the physical world. And, and to believe that it comes from the brain is like confusing stained glass with sunlight. Mm. You know, the stained glass affects sunlight. You know, sunlight comes through the glass, it's filtered, 
you may project an image, right? If you're talking about like a beautiful church window with figures and all kinds of representations, it'll project an image on the floor, okay? But the stained glass is not the sunlight. You know, we, we may, if we're inside the building, the, the stained glass is, is all we can see. And then we, we mistake it for the source of the light. Right. So I, that's my current favorite metaphor. <laughs> right. So, you know, however, however you want to picture it, the point is that consciousness, even if there is something behind consciousness, we're not, we're not ready for that yet. I think it's sufficient to realize that consciousness is not produced by the physical body, certainly, and not by, by physics as we understand them. It comes yeah. from another level. And that, you know, it, it may sound mysterious, but I don't think it's any more mysterious than the fact that, that as you and I sit here, thousands of radio and television broadcasts and wireless communications are going through our space, through our bodies at, at, at every moment. And they, the reason they don't exist is that we don't have a mechanism that tunes into those frequencies unless we happen to have a, a radio or a, or a smartphone or whatever that resonates with those, those particular frequencies. And if you can picture the levels of reality as different frequencies, which whether it's literally true or metaphorical, I think is a very useful way of looking at it. I happen to, I happen to believe at this point that it's true, that we are dealing with, with literally different frequencies. The frequency is based on time and that's, it kind of gets, squirrely at a certain point but i think at least as a metaphor thinking in terms of multiple frequencies it, it basically wipes out the the whole monism dualism debate it's like you know are are our various broadcasts part of the same world or different worlds I, you can define it any way you want you can say that each frequency is its own universe or however you want to label it but i think i don't know that anyone listening to or watching this podcast would doubt that there are all these radio broadcasts going through Correct. us. And, and similarly, you know, people ask, well, if there's an afterlife, where is it located? Is it often some remote heaven and space, whatever? Well, I think most experienced mediums and afterlife communicators would say that, no, it's right here. It's right here in the space around us, inside our bodies, in our houses, in our neighborhoods, in the same way that, that these other realities of electronic communication are, are located, you know? Now, the, the, the greater reality or the afterlife, whatever, whatever you want to call it, may not be strictly spatial in the sense that we, we tend to believe on the basis of our physical senses, but... In, in the book, I suggest that it may be, we can think of it kind of in terms of a hologram mm -hmm. where every part is in some sense present in the whole. And the whole is infinite, spatially mm -hmm. and temporally infinite, no beginning, no end. And that what we, what we experience as a particular identity is, is basically a concentration of that, uh, of that stuff. In the same way that that and I get into this in the book. If you if you if you think of consciousness as a whole, as a limitless ocean, right? mm -hmm. uh, an individual soul would be more or less equivalent to a surfer's wave, which has form, 
It has endurance. It has definite characteristics that you don't find in a calm ocean. It has an identity of its own, a unique identity of its own. And it endures over a period of time based on all of the energy that's pumped into it from this other realm, you might say. So, and and then when the when the when the energy of dissipates in the wave, it goes back to being part of this ocean of consciousness. It's a, it's a very Buddhist vision, I think. And it's one that I hold that everything is just this sort of temporary configuration from the ocean of being. Right. And I like, you know, I also agree with this notion that consciousness is not generated by the brain because I don't think it is. I have often seen the brain as something like a reducing valve. And so that kind of answers the question in a sense that, you know, this question of well, what's the veil? Well, the veil's the brain. And it seems and like- our physical senses as well. Right. And yeah. it seems like what's happening with like some of the mediums is they're able to change the channel a little bit to get on a different frequency. But uh, this is the question. I don't know if you can answer this. With things like the skull experiments where there were apports that were appearing, how does that fit in when you have a physical object manifesting? How does that fit into this ocean of consciousness and the brain being a reducing valve? How do we, how do, how, how do you think that that can be explained? Well, explanations are relative. I think in sure. a very general sense, physical objects, planets, from planets to cities to my ballpoint pen, are like, again, to use the ocean metaphor, are like ripples in that, in that ocean of energy, or again, however you want to conceive of it. And in, in physical mediumship, part of what seems to be going on is the ability to precipitate thought, which is like the blueprint for a physical object. You can precipitate that thought um, intentionally enough and coherently enough. And then there's the process of stepping down the frequency mm. into, the, into the physical. Again, these are just very general right. concepts. In the case of the skull experiment, it took them at least a year of doing regular sittings before they were able to uh, produce, to manifest these phenomena. It takes a while. It's a, it's a, a tuning in process. That's mm -hmm. not easy. There are, you might say that the frequencies bands are so different that it's really, it's, it's a tough job to bring them by intention and by practice close enough together to where you get an, an easy, relatively easy energy exchange. There may also be conditions that we're unaware of you know, phase of the moon, who knows, hmm. you know, the, 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 the relative angles of, of the, the planets, you know, perhaps an astrologer might wish to weigh in on this. One of the metaphors that I've had for this afterlife, ordinary afterlife communication through electronics, which is also inconsistent. We don't know what impedes it or, 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 or aids it. It's like the realms are like two railroad trains traveling on squiggly tracks like so and they're only close enough to each other at certain times and there's one only one open window in each train and achieving communication is like trying to throw a spitball between the trains at those 
precise moments when they happen to line up. I mean, it's kind of a silly metaphor, but but all we know is that concentrated intention and attention uh, are are the 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 indispensable ingredient for making this happen. I think in some in some cases, human presence is an important um, ingredient that uh, physical mediumship may work better when there are more people in the room who have the same intention and, and the same uh, acceptance. It's, you know, we, we hardly have the language for this, but I think that that's, that's the general picture. Yeah. In the case of Skoll, they were able to apport and bring into the room, not only physical objects, but in one experiment, which is one of my favorites, they were the the spirit team on the other side requested that the um, experimenters uh, put a, a conventional thirty five millimeter camera loaded with color film on their central table. And um, during the session, which was held in pretty much complete darkness, they heard the camera levitating, floating around the room with the shutter clicking, and then landing back on the table. And they were asked to have the film developed. And when they developed the film, they found 11 perfectly framed black and white images on that film, which they were told represented images that existed somewhere in the world. Hmm. And they were the Skoll folks were able to track down some of them, not all of them. But so they were able to take an image, which is not even a solid object, and somehow apply it through their consciousness to this film. Later, they were asked just to put rolls of film on the table without a camera. And when those were developed, the films contains a, just a wonderful variety of <clears throat> imagery, writing, poetry, puzzles. In one case, an electri electronic diagram that was signed with the initials TAE, which matched totally matched Thomas Alva mm -hmm. Edison's actual signature. And so on and so on. I mean, it's the 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 variety of phenomena they produced there was was incredible. Now, the the apports they received, the physical objects, they were told were, came from were brought through space and also through time. Hmm. Now, this is a this is a, a kind of a brain twister, but two of the objects that that appeared on their table just out of nowhere, just kind of fell out of out of thin air and onto the table were two newspapers, British newspapers published in 1944 and 45 during the war years. And they were they had one of these papers analyzed by the, the Paper Industry Research Association, which confirmed that the, the newsprint, the paper stock that this was printed on was unique to that period of time and a particular chemical signature. And because during the wartime, they couldn't get certain chemicals. So the paper had this particular chemistry. And I held one of these paper, papers in my hand five years after it had arrived. And I can assure you that the, the outer pages had begun to yellow, but the inside pages were pure white as if this mm. paper had just come off the press. So this is, these, these were very impressive pieces of evidence. And it was an interesting experience going visiting the skull people. They they reenacted. This is about five years after the experiment took place. They reenacted for us some of their work. They gave us some of the audio tapes of their sessions, and a lot of other material, which you'll see in in our documentary. Um, 
and we were impressed that these were were quite you know humble honest people just doing their best to to bring out the truth as they experienced it so i feel i feel privileged to have to have met these folks robin foy the primary experimenter has since passed on but you know interest in i i'm i'm hoping that interest in the skull experiment will will continue and flourish because there's just so much robust evidence contained in in the in in what they collected yeah yeah, I, I had heard of it before, and actually I had seen an early version of the documentary. I know you've got a sort of an updated one, but so it was nice to watch it again. But there were a, a couple of things. I was really impressed. You know, I think that it's, I just want to say this again, you already said this, but that there were members of the Society for Psychical Research that were there, and that there were other people ensuring that trickery was not afoot and mm -hmm. even with some of the film i know in the documentary some of the members of the spr they had the film you know they were the ones who were opening the film they put it in like a sealed container and you were getting like writing and things like that on, on the film and that was so impressive but two things come to mind one is the question do you know if any other group has attempted to replicate something similar to school, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the second question after that. <laughs> okay. As far as I know, at least I haven't heard of anyone attempting to replicate as closely as possible what the school right. people did. It's a, it's a big ask mm, to do yeah, that for sure. They, these, these folks put five years of their life into it. Yeah. During the first year, they had very, very limited results, so they had to keep, excuse me, they had to keep at it, yeah. and that, that's that's a, a huge investment. Now, the, following the Skoll experiment, the the Foys moved to Spain and were intending to create a new center for physical mediumship there, and unfortunately, were un, unsuccessful in raising the funds for it. And then, as I say, Robin passed away, so I don't think that's going to happen. There are there are physical mediums around who are who are quite convincing. They still use the, the this more traditional method that involves what's called ectoplasm, mm. which is a, an emanation from the medium's body that forms itself into different shapes. It can be objects or body parts or whatever, and these can be photographed under the right conditions. In some cases. Uh, plaster molds have been made of the of the uh, hands that have manifested and so on but the the skull folks worked in a different way they did not use ectoplasm at all this was purely what they called energy involved and energy again is is a very broad term my sense of it was was you know the energy of consciousness the energy of intention mm. and and that intention included not simply their presence and their working with the team, but also the care with which they constructed their environment. This was in a below-ground cellar, which meant that there was not a, there wasn't a lot of broadcast RF energy in the environment. They were asked to do their work in total darkness, so that because even any light, according to the spirit team, any light, even infrared light, would would hamper their efforts. They would, would introduce a kind of a resistance. So in, in total darkness, how do you prevent trickery? Hmm. 
So what they settled on was, and this was all, there were a lot of little compromises made in order to make this work. And one of them was that they had these luminous adhesive tabs that they applied to every movable object in the room, to the central table itself. Uh, all participants wore uh, luminous wristbands that were secured with Velcro. So if anyone tried to strip them off during the session, it would be audible. The table itself was constructed so no one could reach under it. And again, everything was, every session was recorded on audio tape. The, the only access door was locked during all sessions. Everyone left keys and other devices outside the room. <clears throat> so now cameras were permitted for purposes and electronics were permitted for particular purposes. Obviously the, the recorder that monitored each session was, was allowed. They also had a, a cheap consumer type cassette recorder from which they had removed the microphone and mm -hmm. used just its amplifier for various communication experiments, which were successful. And you can hear some of it in our documentary. And on, on, on some occasions, as I said, cameras were permitted for particular purposes. They allowed a, a VHS videotape camera to be brought in and set up in a particular way. So with a, a pair of mirrors, so if, if this, is the, this is the camera, it could see the light from its own viewfinder. And that created what's called a video feedback loop, where you have you have uh, shapes and forms of light that are very unstable and very mobile. And out of this unstable visual environment, the spirit team was uh, evidently able to create very coherent images. There were some sort of abstract and semi-abstract color paintings, you might call them, which were discovered on individual video frames. And how they do that, I have no idea. <laughs> individual video frames, which were each were different from the adjacent ones. There were also moving, moving images of some animated faces. And one kind of looked like an alien with, but it had big human eyes that right. moved back and forth. I think you've, you've seen the documentary. Mm -hmm. I'm very fascinated with that one. Fascinated yeah. and entertained by that one. And, and and other phenomena were were produced in this way, again. And the tapes were 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 carefully you know isolated so they couldn't have been tampered with. And I, I think these these experiments were uniformly solid, responsibly done, and 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 created again in concert with this <clears throat> excuse me this team on the other side, both sides being aware of the other side's limitations, you might say, and working together to produce whatever they could produce in concert with each other. Hmm. Well, it's very fascinating. And it makes me wonder what would it be like if this could be replicated in the 21st century with 21st century technology. But what I wanted to mention though is that what really comes to mind and i don't know if you're familiar with this is and this is something that came to mind when i was watching the documentary was that it took them a year it took them about a year before anything started manifesting and one of the 
I'll call it paranormal for lack of a better term here, experiments that I find endlessly fascinating was something that was done by a Canadian paranormal group, the Philip experiment. Are you familiar with the Philip no, experiment? No, I'm not. Please, please tell oh, me. Oh, they created a ghost. What they did is they wrote a story. They wrote a life story for this character, Philip. And Philip lived, I think, in the 17th century or something. And it was a tragic love affair. And Philip ended up taking his life. And what this group did is they began having seances. And nothing of consequence happened until about a year. And mm -hmm. after about a year, Philip started kind of manifesting. Now, there wasn't any kind of physical manifestation in terms of like a you know a ghost or anything like that, but tables would move, they would levitate. And what was really interesting is that Philip would answer questions, but only question he could only answer questions based on the story that they had created. So and yeah. What does it sound like to you? I, well, it sounds... I, I, I ask, uh, sounds like AI to me. Kind of, yeah. I mean, one of the things, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is that year-long intention. And I know that one of the, you know, quote-unquote criticisms <laughs> that happen, and I could see someone doing this with the, the skull experiments. But then I think that people don't actually stop to consider what they're saying with the criticism is that, well, they were making all of this happen. And it's like, even if that's so that's phenomenal that right. they're doing this. And it seems to go back to that question of consciousness in a sense. But I just saw that parallel with that years intent, you know, attention and intention. Yeah. So I was curious. That's why I wanted to know if you knew anything about it, but yeah. I, I, I Now that you mentioned, I have heard of it, but I haven't studied it. Mm. And, yeah. you know, when, when it comes to consciousness, consciousness is a very slippery thing in a way. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. it, it, it seems to dwell in a realm that has no limitations, no parameters other than what it itself creates. Right. For its own convenience or its own purposes. And I'd, I'd have to know more about this story to understand it, but it, you know, the, I, I, I don't believe artificial intelligence is conscious right. in and of right. itself. I think we, we tend to confuse information and consciousness. We, we confuse thinking and consciousness as well, which are two very different things. And, but I think what, what AI, for example, at least at the stage that it's, at now is kind of rubbing our noses in all these questions. Mm. And I think eventually the the whole the whole post-humanist impulse, which is part of the which of which AI is part, is going to reveal to us its own limitations. Mm. Now it's true that we could con continue to to bumble along with our old assumptions and believe more and more and more uh, thoroughly that AI is conscious. But that's, I think that that will at some point have to go off the rails. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. There, there may be a faction of materialism 
that becomes more and more and more <laughs> ossified and crystallized like conventional religion. Yeah. And we'll, we'll never move off that track. You know, we'll have to see. I don't know. But I think at the same time, more and more folks will begin to see the bigger picture. Yeah. I think does, more that, make, more... does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I agree. I think that people are making assumptions about AI that it is conscious. And I don't think it is. I don't know that it ever can be. And it is kind of predicated on this idea of materialism, you know, that it's almost like, well, we're replicating the human brain and therefore we can create something that is conscious, just like the brain creates consciousness. Right. And one of the, one of the things I'm actually concerned about is I doubt it will happen, but just, it, it, it's a funny thing to imagine that you know we know we know that those on the other side can speak to us through electronics this right. has been very firmly established so my question is well will some actual consciousness attempt to mm. come through a, a an ai system yeah now we know that ai system is actually a, a a very spread out kind of thing it's not just one little machine so i doubt this will happen but it's kind of i think this would make a a funny movie yeah. scenario <laughs> Where, where an actual consciousness does come through an AI system and and then explains that it's not the system. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the punchline. Anyway, that, sorry, go, please, please yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I like that. I think that's a, a great sort of thought plot, if you will. So I'm curious as well about, I know that we're, a little bit on the short end of the time here. We're um, okay. We're okay. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of the, I, I'm going to refer to them as electronic voice phenomena because that's how I know them, EVPs. And they are, I think a lot of folks in who are listening to the podcast may be familiar with them from shows like Ghost Hunters or something like that, mm -hmm. where they always have the recorders out and then go back and play. And quite often, the voices that are captured, not always, but quite often, they're scratchy and you have to listen really hard to determine what's being said. And then sometimes... You know, it's like, oh, I think, you know, maybe that's just wishful thinking. Mm. Are there clearer examples where there's no mistake about the voice and what's being said? Watch my documentary, Calling okay. Earth. You'll All see. Right. And it's explained in the documentary that there are different classes of, mm. of, of EVP results. Uh, class A is unmistakable, maybe perfectly conversational as well. Uh, class B, pretty much everyone understands what's being said. Class C is on the border. It may require some, you know, digital enhancement to, to make it audible. And there is no class D, but if there were, it's, that's what people would be making up, you know, and imagining. Right. right. But there, there is, there, there are these, these various levels of, of clarity. And I've, I've emphasized in, in my documentary, mostly the class A and B, because they're, they're quite un unmistakable. And part of class A would be the two-way conversations, right. which are very hard to, very hard to imagine unless you, unless you imagine that there, there are actors involved, you know, creating these things for effect. 
in particular, the <clears throat> experimenter Konstantin Radova, who I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> has has been able to sustain uh, some of these dialogues, or in some cases monologues, for a matter of minutes, which is quite a lot. Uh, a lot of these voices come through only for a matter of seconds. Again, it's you know throwing that spitball between the two trains right. at that at that exact moment. It's it's not easy apparently. And Raudova himself has, as I say, has been able to sustain these conversations over a matter of several minutes with perfect clarity. Mm. And his his voice and his mannerisms, wherever they come through anywhere in the world, are are the same. As the same sort of is warm but gruff sort of presentation. And uh, I have a theory about that, which is that he's kind of taken on this persona in order to to have the the strength to punch through the resistance mm. his is fascinating i i tracked down the only known recording of his voice during his lifetime and it's different mm. it's a more sort of meek and mild personality and yet his afterlife character has this this strength and this determination and my theory is that that he sort of either synthesized, created, synthesized, or took on this persona, or it may have been a past life persona of his, as a tool to punch through this resistance. Hmm. But it's definitely it's definitely uniform from tape recordings to radio received radio transmissions to telephone calls. So this is a very, these are very robust communications. Hmm. Again, I've, I've have a sample of them in my film. So, you know, judge, judge for yourself. Right. Raudova has also come through with a team of mediums that I work with. I've been working with for about five years and we, we have created a website, which I mentioned in the book, it's called cosmic voices, one word, cosmic voices dot network. One word, it's not dot net, it's dot network cosmicvoices.network. And if you go to that site, you can see many of the messages that were brought through by the, the two main mediums on this site, Gene Love and Regina Ochoa. Gene is, is a, a wonderful, outspoken resident of Los Angeles who has an affinity for people like artists and actors and so on who passed over. It's like she, she's on their roster of mediums who are who are tuned into that cultural media. The other medium, Regina Ochoa, lives in the western panhandle of Nebraska. She's sort of the reluctant medium, but mm -hmm. she's marvelous. And I've worked with these these two fabulous women for about five years. And Raudova has come through them as well. We've had some interesting dialogues, which is a whole other story. But yeah, we haven't we haven't talked much about ordinary mental mediumship in this conversation, right. but it's right. alive right. and well. And like the, the the two mediums that I've been working with are actually best known for having channeled the crews of the space shuttles Challenger and Columbia, mm. the two space shuttles that were lost. And the the transcripts of this channeling are on another website that was created by uh, the Foundation for Mind Being Research here in Silicon Valley. And if you if you just Google up the Challenger Channeling website, 
Challenger Channeling website, you'll get the you'll get the direct link to go there. And it's a simple site that was set up by the FMBR, and it contains the transcripts of this of this channeling, of 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 both these crews, and including on the Columbia side, also some audio of these sessions, mm. which I record also recorded video, which is not up on the site, but at least you can hear the actual audio, and you know make up your own mind about its genuineness. Uh, personally, having been present at some of these sessions, uh, I was I was really um, impressed by the quality of this work and by the integrity of, of the mediums. I don't have enough good things to say about them. And they're wonderful, wonderful human beings as well. So anyway, that's, a, that's another whole window into afterlife communication. Yeah. And mm. it's true that, that there's always something of the medium in the message. Mm. You can't get around that. There are you from, from one channeling session to another you'll you'll see now and then certain commonalities of language and that's because the folks on the other side use the the mediums language banks if you if you will to communicate there was in 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 working with the with the astronauts were certain technical things they wanted to communicate that they couldn't because Gene or Regina did not have the the terminology in their own in, in their own lexicon, yeah. and so they had to kind of work work around that using metaphors and so on, which is interesting. It's not the, the communication isn't cut and dried. It's a it's a complex process. There are multiple personalities involved, and you sort of have to be around it for a while to be able to 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 kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. <clears throat> the wheat from the chaff. There's not a whole lot of chaff in this situation. But but there's still, you know, we all, when we as a human being act as a channel for someone else, there's always going to be something of us mm. in the quality of what comes through. Some mediums will, will channel accents really well. Others will just channel the words, so on, um, to some extent, the mannerisms and that sort of thing. So it's not, it's not a a cut and dried procedure you know there's a, a a human element involved on both sides right it's not a mechanical sort of thing so i think once once you get once we get that we can more easily evaluate what's actually going on we have to allow for these things yeah well and it seems like there's you know much of the focus has been in this discussion at least there have been recordings and the mediums, but, you know, you had mentioned at the very beginning about lights flickering mm -hmm. and that's something that I've experienced and it's not actually lights flickering, but lights being turned on. Mm -hmm. It's actually the lights that are behind me. I was receiving a message. I'm going to say I received a message and I was very careful where this was a, uh, a different apartment. I had them on top of a long bookcase. And one morning I come out of my bedroom and one of the lights was on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's weird. I don't remember having that light on. So I turned it off. And then about a week later, I come out and the other lights on. <laughs> and so it started getting my attention. And I went through trying to figure out what could be going on. Could it be you know, the air conditioner could be doors opening and closing and the cats couldn't get up to them. Um, but it got to the point where I would even go into my kitchen and then come back out and one of the lights would be on. And did then there were, the, did you check the position of the light switch? 
uh, there's no light switch. These are they're touch base. So, ah. and what was interesting is that the day that I received the letter that I had been admitted to the doctoral program I went into, wow. I had gone downstairs to get the mail. And when I came back up and I walked in, both the lights were on. Mm. And that was the last time that ever happened. There was once recently, several months ago, where I had gone to a very meaningful retreat and I came home and I walked in the door and one of the lights was on. That's the only other time. But I, you know, I, I have no idea who was speaking to me or what was trying to speak to me or what the message was. I just know that something was trying to speak to me. And the problem is I don't, I never could figure out if it was a warning or like, yay, you go, <laughs> you know, it was kind of ambiguous that way, but no, I was going to say that that's wonderful. I've, I've had similar experiences yeah. in my, in my book, I refer to them as postmortem pranks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had one, one in particular, well, two in particular, I could mention very, very briefly, one is not long after my late partner, Jane, passed away. I was getting ready for bed and thinking about her. And all of a sudden, the clock radio on the night table turns itself on. Mm -hmm. the, the LCD clock glows like the sun, lights up the whole room. It had never done this before. And then shuts off. Mm -hmm. And this happens three times in, the, in, three times in three minutes or so. And it had not happened before, not happened since. So that was, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I, I received it as, as a, as a nice little gift. Yeah. Also at an, on a different occasion, I had had a, a battery powered nightlight on a, on a night table turn itself on. And this was in connection with a visit from my late father mm. who appeared. It's a long, it's a long story. It was preceded by a series of dreams and coincidences and so on. But my father appears to me in this particular dream just after this light was turned on. I, I had gotten, it was four in the morning, I'd gotten up to go to the bathroom and noticed that this light was on, so I hadn't turned on. Went back to sleep, turned the light off, went back to sleep, and then my father appears mm. with, with this big grin on his face. First time that I had received a communication from him since he had passed some years back. And I said, Dad, did you flip that switch? <laughs> And it was a, it was a physical switch, and he said, "Yeah, sure." I said, "You know which switch?" He says, "Yeah, the light on the table." So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, again, how this happens, I don't know. I wasn't exactly prepared for it, right? Except that in in a dream a few nights earlier, I had a dream about a particular woman, whom I then met the following day, having forgotten about the dream, and she turned out to be from my father's birthplace in Ukraine. There followed a series of dreams over four nights and then culminating right. in my father's appearing. It's a long story, but you know, the, the coincidences are just a right. little too much to, to dismiss. Right. So anyway, sorry, I, I didn't mean to jump in on you there, but. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was done with my light story and yeah. <laughs> I, was, I just wanted to share that, but you know, the, what I was getting at is that it seems as if people are getting communications in a variety of ways through electronic devices, through lights. I know someone who some friends of mine lost their oldest son and they are convinced that the son will speak to them through posts on Facebook, you know, to, you know, speaking in terms of modern technologies. And so, you know, I just, you know, the, 
problem with all of that, if we want to call it a problem, is that you don't have the recording, you know, there's not the evidence, it's just temporary. But it seems like coincidence, synchronicity has something to play, plays a part in all of this as well, that that gives us the meaning um, where it's like, ah, yes, you know, like the, the dream and then meeting the woman the next day. Mm-hmm. you know, those kind of verifications, you know, it's, one of the, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch to dismiss all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that, that, you know, I know people will dismiss them as mere coincidence, but sometimes these mere coincidences kind of rack up after a while and they're hard to dismiss. Yeah, I, I agree. There, there's, I have this thing. I've, other people have, have had this as well where I'll see 1111 on digital clocks. Oh, yeah. And I always rule out any instances in which that clock was within my field of vision. Because mm. I've, I've caught myself subconsciously responding, even though it may be a tiny, a tiny representation on the top of my computer screen or something out of the corner of my eye, I'll dismiss that. Mm. But ha- happening to walk into a room just as it's 1111 on the clock is a different a different class of of event Mm. and those are the ones that i that if it happens you know like 10 times in in a day well it hasn't happened 10 times a day but just as an example if it happens often in that way that 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 tends to have a different meaning i'll also go through periods where like i'll have the radio on and i usually i'm a classic classical music junkie and so i'll have the classical music local classical music station on a lot of the day and so it's mostly music but then the announcers will come on and i can't tell you there are periods of time where i'll be reading something on my computer screen and as i read a given word the same word comes in on on the radio Hmm. it has happened over and over again i've also been you know out at at a interesting thing happened a few years ago i was out at a local cafe doing some writing and I was searching for a word, just the right word to put in. And all of a sudden the person at the next table says that word. Hmm. And again, I don't know whether to call that coincidence or what, but it was just, it was like a a gift from the universe. Oh, that's the word, exactly the word I want. Yeah. So anyway, end of story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of reminds me of, I think it's was developed by, folks at the Stanley Hotel here in Colorado, I think it's called the Estes Method, where Mm -hmm. they have noise canceling headphones on. And it's like a radio that goes through cycles through all of these stations and someone will ask questions and then they will like report words that will pop up. But sometimes they get answers to direct answers to the questions that are asked. That's a, that's a tough one. I've experienced that. It's it's a it's called radio sweep. It's oh, the okay. radio sweep technique, where they'll take a, a radio and just turn the knob. It'll go from station to station, and you get fragment. Obviously, fragments of words right, right. will come and go. And I've had that done by by some practitioners, and it's just hard to know where communicate where coincidence ends and communication begins. It's a mm. subjective thing. I mean. In, in the instance that, that I had experienced, uh, it was pretty uncanny. Hmm. Pretty, un- you know, pretty uncanny. How do you measure that? 
Right. And that's why in my documentary, I have not even mentioned that type of technique. Right. I'm focusing on on those instances that have come through without any environmental preparation, you might say. Mm. There are various kinds of noise that you can put into the environment. Just totally random white noise seems to help. I do mention that in the film, mm. but that doesn't have any any coherent sounds to it. That could right. be mistaken as as words. That one of the ways in which we think these communications take place is that the folks on the other side can modulate existing noise on this side to produce the sounds of words, the phonemes, and so on. And that may be true in some cases. In other cases, some different technique may be involved. We just don't know. We just we use whatever works. Hmm. Common denominator for successful. EVP communication seems to be an emotional bond with the person on the other side. The technology seems to matter less as long as it's in good working order. Okay. At least that, that's been most people's experience. I also, I don't pretend to have researched every nook and cranny of this field. Right. There, may be, there may be practices going on that, that I've never even heard about. I just recently did an interview with a, a man who's a professor at a, a Canadian university in the Toronto area. And he has he's received a grant to um, to do a, a, a survey of uh, afterlife communications through smartphones, hmm. which apparently are happening to a lot of people, mainly through text, right? Things like like you know so, social media posts, hmm. but also direct direct texts, which you know from from the deceased person's account to which right. no one else has had access and all that. So there'd be various levels of, of evidence in, involved in this, but that I find that fascinating. Yeah. And I imagine it's probably easier to do text than to do voice because it's not as complex. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And that was actually one of the final questions I had for you was where do you think the research goes from here? Um, because there's a lot we didn't discuss, but like we didn't really talk about reincarnation, but let's let people read your book to find out about that but there's really compelling evidence there but yeah where where do you think the research goes from here uh well i wish i had a crystal ball <laughs> <laughs> where, well where would you like to see it go what what do you think would be the most fruitful ways to go about this i don't know hmm. what, what my hope is <clears throat> excuse me, is that enough people will be aware of the research that's already been done that, A, they'll be less afraid to share their own experiences. I think that's maybe the most important aspect of what's going on now is the, the, that the, the curtain is beginning to, to part now on, on this, whole, this whole issue. So that's, to me, number one. Secondly, I think as more people start to play around with these things, and, and have these these involuntary experiences that we will develop techniques or whatever you want to call them that will that will make these forms of communication easier and, and more frequent. And whether it's whether that's a technical breakthrough or you know, understanding of you know what phase of the moon helps or hinders, I don't know. And I I, I don't know that enough people are doing this that that it can have any sort of cumulative mass effect i i'm you know i'm i'm hoping that something will happen along these lines yeah. and you know by whatever means people will begin to be more comfortable with the, the notion of 
you know, our, what we think we know is, is not all there is to know. And that when we start having these experiences to at least not dismiss them out of hand, mm-hmm. that, that you know, these things do happen, what they are and what they mean will evolve in our culture over time. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to know exactly the the, the trajectory, right, right. But I, I think I think you would agree that that it's important that people pay attention to this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's the, the uh, I think that people don't necessarily know how much research has been done. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that people are aware of all the research that Ian Stevenson did on reincarnation. I don't know how many people are familiar with the work that Dean Radin's doing and, you know, others, you know, along those lines. And I think that just getting that information out there, because sometimes people will say, well, there's no evidence for this, but there is evidence (laughs) quite a bit. And I think that's probably one of the first most important steps is to, get people to recognize that there is evidence. Well, this, this, thank you for bringing this up. Even, even in the, in mainstream journalism in general, when it comes to controversial issues, one or another authority will say there is no evidence for X, Y, or Z. Right. Now you can't say that unless you pretend to be omniscient. Yeah. To, to have access to every stream of, of information in the, in the known universe and beyond. Yeah, but it it doesn't work that way. You can't say there is no. You can say I know of no evidence, or my discipline knows of no evidence, hmm. or my colleagues know of no. Evidence. That's as far as you can take it. Yeah, to say there is no evidence is is I think it's epistemological fascism. If you want to know yes. the truth, you know. It, it, and, yeah. Yeah, I would use the term indoctrination. And I say that because one of the, well, two of the classes I teach, one is uh, logic and the other has been critical thinking. And in part of the critical thinking class, I have to cover, you know, quote unquote, pseudoscience. And, you know, I I like to be open-minded about some things. I think it's important to be able to identify when something is false and dangerous. But one of the actually the primary logic book that I use, there is a chapter on, you know, again, quote, pseudoscience. And when it talks about, for example, like psychic phenomena, it just flat out says there's no evidence for this. And I cannot in good conscience stand there in front of a group of students and say, there's no evidence for this when I know that there is. And I see it as indoctrination. Exactly. And, and it's even one thing to say there's no proof, right? which may not be true in and of itself, but to say that there is no evidence right. is really stupid. Right, right. Because evidence is not proof. Evidence is the, is the, the beginning, you know, it, it's, it, it primes the pump of research. Right. So it, it's inspiration sometimes. Well, I've, I've experienced something, maybe that's evidence of something. Or it's evidence of something, but not proof. Right. And skeptics love to love to confuse the two. Oh yeah. You know, if there's no proof, they say there's no evidence, and that's you know that's kind of weasel wording. You don't want to yeah. do that. Yeah, and then they also completely reject anecdotal evidence, the subjective experiences. Right. Well, that's the beginning of of inquiry. Yeah. You know, that's where you start, yeah. and to 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 dismiss the starting point of science 
is is itself pseudoscience mm-hmm. you know? yeah yeah no i agree i agree well, Daniel, I know that we are out of time, but let me ask you just two final questions. These are the standard questions. What do you have coming up next? Well, I've been working on a screenplay forever. Okay. And I hope to finish that in the next couple of years. I'm just, at this point, I'm just responding to podcast requests. My publisher has been very active in spreading the word. And uh, I've I've enjoyed these conversations with with. Um, folks whom I, whom I hadn't met or known about before. And it's, I'm enjoying kind of joining this, this network of, of, of interested folks. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my first priority. I also still, I'm, I'm semi-retired. I still work doing media work and so on. So that takes part of my time. I'm right now, I'm having to face issue of moving which is a whole other, as, as I think you appreciate, because you've just had yeah. to go through the same process yeah. is, is a, you know, a, a, a huge project. So it's, my life is pretty intense right now. <laughs> I'm the, the Gaia TV folks are flying me out to Boulder later mm-hmm. this month to do an interview there. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm really pleased that, that my book has been received uh, as well as it has. So my first attempt at writing, mm-hmm. uh, I had no idea who my audience was. I was really kind of writing for myself in a way, but uh, I'm, I'm delighted that, that um, a whole wide range of folks have, have, have found that found it useful and fascinating and, and also supportive of their own experiences. Yeah. Now you gave a few websites for, uh, I had them written down for the, the channeling, uh, the challenger and the Columbia mm-hmm. and the conscious cosmic voices network. Do you have a website where people can go to find out more about you and some of the other documentaries that you've been involved with? Right. It's just dandrazen.com. D-A-N-D-R-A-S-I-N.com. You'll see my some of my photography, my professional history, and so on. And then one of the main menu items is new science. You click on that, and you'll see the book and some of the kind reviews I've gotten. And if you just keep scrolling down on the new science page, you'll get to the links for the two documentaries. Okay. If you scroll Wonderful. down further and click on what is new science, it opens up a whole other website that's behind that website that includes some of the things I've written and produced over the years in this area. There's one essay that I did called Zen in the Art of Debunkery, right. which is a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek critique of pseudo-skepticism. And you can find it on a, a wonderful site that's called skepticalaboutskeptics.org. And I'm not, there's some wonderful other essays on that site as well that really kind of put the, put the screws to the skeptics. Yeah. And that kind of needs to happen. I think, I think that being skeptical is really important, but the people that we often see that are presented as skeptics, they're not really skeptics. They're just naysayers and coming from a worldview that they don't acknowledge. So Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate the work that you've done trying to bring all of this to the public's attention and bring it to light. And it's important. It's the question, you know, what is real and you can't get more real than that. Right. Well, Um, and, and likewise to you, Nick, for your efforts and your, your work and your outreach into the world. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. 
And that's a wrap on episode 104 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. Now, you know what's coming. All the usual. Sign up for my Patreon. Share this with friends and family and on social media. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. You know the grind. But here's the thing. All of that is really important. Putting together this podcast takes a lot of time. Uh, right now, it's a labor of love, and I'm in the process of making changes to improve the podcast and the YouTube channel. It's slow going. Like my dad used to say, slower than molasses in January. Your support will help me speed up the process and ensure that I can continue with the podcast and offer a lot more content than what I provide now. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me in my efforts to share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.